0: Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 22. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle or near the end of a series through the ministry of Elijah, 1 Kings 22, a wonderful story. Don't forget as I read that whenever we come across the name LORD in all caps or in small caps, that is in the Hebrew, God's divine name, Yahweh, and so I'll read it in that way. Hear God's word. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people. My horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of Yahweh. And the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of Yahweh of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, "Ah, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of Yahweh, Micaiah the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says Yahweh, with these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king." And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them, and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramah of Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go up in triumph. Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, how many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of Yahweh? And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of Yahweh. I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And Yahweh said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before Yahweh, saying, I will entice him. And Yahweh said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, Yahweh has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Yahweh has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaan, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of Yahweh go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah, take him back to Amon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear, all you peoples. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariot saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died. And was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of Yahweh that he had spoken. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, and the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask us to help, him, help us as we study his word. Our Father, we thank you that you send forth your word and it does not return to you empty without accomplishing all that you have purposed, without doing that for which you sent it to do. And so, Lord, we pray that even this morning you would take your word and you would use it according to your sovereign will. For your name's sake, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. As you look back over your Christian life, if you have been a Christian for some time or even for a few weeks, is there a particular truth, a particular doctrine that has been a source of great comfort and strength and encouragement to you as you have journeyed on to heaven? I think it may be possible that some of you hear that question and say, well, what are you talking about? Doctrine being comforting and truth being encouraging. Uh, It's possible that uh, in, in your mind, you've never thought of doctrine or truth that way. But remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul tells us that one of the first uses of the Bible, of the scripture, is for doctrine, to equip us to serve the Lord and to serve his people. And so my question really isn't fair, as if only one doctrine can hold that place of most encouraging in our lives. And as I think back over my own Christian journey, uh, there are a lot of doctrines that I would want to put before you as those that have encouraged me and strengthened me, but, but probably the, uh, the one that would be highest at the list or toward the top of the list at least is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the truth of God's absolute total control over all things. Like many of you, I have come to learn and to love this doctrine through the ringer as it were. Uh, for me, even uh, at The age of 46, looking backward, uh, it is still uh, looking back at those years in junior high when my parents were divorced that led me to wrestle with the Lord. Lord, why has this happened? And that wrestling led me to the Bible and in the scriptures through high school and through college, through pastors and youth leaders and, and older brothers and sisters in the faith, the Lord enabled me to see that he is God. He is God, all-sovereign, all-powerful, filled with wisdom, filled with love, filled with power to accomplish his sovereign will. He is not ignorant. He is not powerless, but he is a purposeful God who is absolutely in control of all things. He has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He works all things after the counsel of his will. And so the Lord, through that very difficult experience in junior high, led me to embrace what Nebuchadnezzar embraced, what Nebuchadnezzar learned in Daniel 4 when he writes for us that God does according to his will in the host of heaven and in the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You've made a mistake, God. God makes no mistakes. So often our views of God are so small and so one of the jobs that we as your pastors have each week is to to bring before you from the word of God a big view of God. The Bible's view of God, that God is a sovereign God, a glorious king. He reigns and he rules triumphantly. The Bible is full of this teaching, of course, from cover to cover. There are certain stories that speak it even more particularly. You know, perhaps the story of Job or the story of of Jacob and Joseph. Maybe you've even read the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. But I wonder if you have ever read or heard the story that we've just read This morning, or it's parallel in 2 Chronicles chapter 18. It is one of the most amazing stories of the sovereignty of God in all the scriptures. We can break it down into three scenes. In the first scene, verses 1 to 28, the two kings are contemplating going into battle against Syria. And we see in those verses that God is sovereign even over evil. In the second scene, verses 24 to 36, as the battle itself ensues, we see that God is sovereign even over chance and accidents. And finally, in the third scene, verses 37 to 40, at a pool in Samaria, we see that God is sovereign over his word. And all three of these scenes would teach us that the sovereignty of God is a doctrine that should bring much comfort. But also, it teaches us that the sovereignty of God is a truth that should lead us to submit to the word of God, to bow our knee humbly and reverently to the God who reigns over all. Let's look at these three scenes together. First, God is sovereign over evil. This is one of those stories that would be so wonderful to see in a movie, wouldn't it? Right? The dialogue, the tension, they're powerful Ahab, of course, is our main character, but the author has brought another character into the story, King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. In 2 Chronicles 18, we learn that Jehoshaphat had allied himself with Ahab through marriage. He had given his son to to marry Ahab's daughter. They had had this political agreement, this marriage alliance. It certainly would have been a politically shrewd thing to do because of Assyria, uh, the country at the, the far north that was threatening the nation of Israel and Judah. But obviously, it was also a foolish thing to do in the eyes of the Lord. The descendant of David ought never to have allied himself with one as wicked as Ahab. Now, at some point after the marriage, we see that Jehoshaphat decides to take a little trip up north to come down Mount Zion and up to Samaria, the capital city of Israel, to visit his son's family. At one point during the feast, as you see there, Ahab states to some of his men, Can you believe it? The Syrians have taken Ramoth-Gilead, and we are doing nothing to take our land back from them. This is horrible. This is a travesty. And then he turns to Jehoshaphat, and in front of all of them, he asks him this question. Jehoshaphat, we're family. Would you like to join us as we go and fight against the Syrians? Wouldn't that be a great idea? Jehoshaphat probably a little bit uh, put on the spot, we might say. And so he says what he says. I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses, essentially saying, yes, we will join you in the battle. But then perhaps Jehoshaphat's conscience got the better of him. And so you read it there in verse four, is it? Verse five, when he says to the king of Israel, "Uh, inquire first of Yahweh. Let's, Let's see what Yahweh thinks about this. It is good to see what God would think about it. He should have asked that before, saying yes, of course. And so Ahab brings out his prophetic retinue, and it's a 400-man retinue. It's this huge prophetic group, and and they've come out, and they ask them, should we fight against Ramoth-Gilead? Should we fight against the Syrians? And like this human magic eight ball, the answer comes back, go up, for the Lord will give Ramoth-Gilead into the king's hand. Now obviously, Jehoshaphat smells a little bit of a rat. Something smells fishy here. These prophets seem to be on the, on the dole, on the payroll, right? They're yes-men. Of course they're going to say what the, the king wants to hear, lest they lose their jobs and possibly their heads. Could you imagine one man in the back? No, bad idea, don't do it, right? Who is that guy? He's dead, right? And so then Jehoshaphat says, well, do you have actually a prophet of Yahweh here, right? And Micaiah's answer is classic. Yes, there is one man who will tell me what Yahweh says, but I hate him, right? Because he always prophesies evil concerning me instead of good. Micaiah. Jehoshaphat mildly rebukes Ahab. They summon Micaiah and the messenger goes to him in verse 13 and lets him know, of course, that everyone is saying this. And you better say this too. Let your word be like the word of one of them. Speak favorably, he warns. Micaiah is undaunted. As Yahweh lives, what Yahweh says to me, that I will speak. So Micaiah comes out, and now the story begins to get interesting. Having been prompted by the messenger, Micaiah joins right in with what all the other 400 prophets are saying. Go up, triumph, Yahweh will give it into your hands. But obviously there must have been some hint of sarcasm in his, his voice because Ahab can see through it. He knows that Micaiah is not speaking what he really wants to speak. And so then Micaiah switches his tune to deadly serious, And in the midst of the feasting and the revelry, he proclaims doom to Ahab in verse 17. I saw all Israel scattered on the hills as sheep that have no shepherd. And Yahweh said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. He's prophesying Ahab's death, the the death of the leader of the nation of Israel. Israel will be shepherdless and kingless and leaderless. And then Ahab gets all huffy and says to Jehoshaphat, see Such a Debbie Downer, such a party pooper. He always does this to me. But Micaiah says, I'm not done yet, Ahab. Hear what Yahweh says. And then you see there in verses 19 through 23, which for the sake of time, I won't read again. But there, God brings us out of the the throne room of King Ahab and into his heavenly throne room. And we see an amazing thing. The Lord God's sovereign rule extends even over evil. The God of truth sovereignly reigns over the false prophecies of the false prophets. He puts a spirit of deception into their mouths, using their lie to carry out his judgment against Ahab by inducing him to go up against Syria and to be killed there. Now, does it sound strange to you to say that God is sovereign over evil? That God uses evil to accomplish his purposes? It is strange, isn't it? And yet it's true. It's true. But we must be very careful how we say this truth. And so let me just lay out a few caveats for us. First, James 1 tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone. Rather, we are tempted because of the lust of our sinful hearts. All that God does is holy and just. And so in a way that is mysterious to our finite minds, God's inciting these false prophets to deceive Ahab brings no guilt upon God. For rather, he's only giving them over to the deception of their own hearts, to the the sin of their own hearts, to their love of falsehood and lying. It's not as if these prophets really wanted to say the truth. They were liars at, at root. And so you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, not contradictory, but complementary. The way is when you're driving down I-20 and all of a sudden I-59 meets you near Meridian as you're on your way to Birmingham and the two interstates are together. In the same way, there is this mysterious togetherness of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But second, notice that in this story, God actually tells Ahab the truth. He tells him exactly what he is doing He is being led into ruin by his own prophets. And yet Ahab refuses to believe the truth and heads into his own death. And lastly, notice that through this lying spirit, God is doing what? He is judging Ahab for his wickedness. Ahab doesn't want the truth. And so God in justice gives Ahab exactly what he wants. God uses wickedness to judge the wicked. We think perhaps of Habakkuk wrestling with God, how he uses the Babylonians, a wicked country, to judge his own people who, yes, are wicked, but they're even more wicked. God uses evil to judge. But God is not simply sovereign over evil to judge the rebellious. He is often sovereign over evil, the evil that comes against his own people, when there's no judgment at all going on. Think of Job. When the Sabaeans come and kill his oxen and his donkey, is God taken by surprise by this? Of course not. What does Joseph tell his brothers? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about this present result. God, sovereign over their wicked hearts to perform his good purposes, But of course, the best illustration of all of the the sovereignty of God over evil being used for good is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter say in Acts 2? As he speaks to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, he says, This man Jesus, delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You put him to death. You are guilty. And yet the cross is according to God's sovereign plan. In Acts 4, the same thing is said, Truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God sovereignly reigned over the evil of those who put Jesus to death, and he used it for our salvation. Here's the point. This truth of the sovereignty of God over evil, it should be such a comfort to us to know that he is absolutely sovereign even over the things that are the most wicked, the most rebellious. He uses even those things to accomplish good in the lives of his people. He's not a frustrated landlord who who's can't believe what his tenants have done to make a mess of the place. He is a God who works all things according to the counsel of his decreed will, even those things that are contrary to his revealed will, his will of command. And so when evil befalls you, when you or someone you love suffers at the hand of the wicked or the unjust, know that God is not off of his throne. He is the Lord of human pain, as we sing. Whatever he ordains is right, Romans eight twenty eight is not just some sort of you know nice happy clappy little verse that you want to throw out to people who are having a hard time. It is sober and solemn truth. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so, when afflictions are your lot, don't you see what God is teaching us through this story? You can know that God knows exactly what He is doing. He is wise. He is powerful. And he is good and kind. And he has a plan that he is working out even through evil. So God is sovereign over evil. But secondly, this story teaches us that God is sovereign over chance. Ahab does appear to to be affected by what he hears from Micaiah. Uh, He he seeks to thwart this, though, by telling Jehoshaphat, look, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to dress like a common soldier. You dress like a king. Jehoshaphat, again, sort of showing himself not the wisest chap in the story. And so they go out and the Syrians see Jehoshaphat on all of his battle regalia and they, they go to attack him. Like, Wait a minute, that's not Ahab. And so they turn away and you notice it says that Jehoshaphat cries out. The second Chronicles tells us that that cry out is not just a, oh no, but it's a Lord help me. It's a prayer. And God hears him in the midst of his folly, in the midst of his sin and delivers him. If we had more time, we would talk about that. But the story goes on and, and the, king's, the author of Kings tells it in such an understated way. Verse 34, but a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the dress, breastplate. A random soldier who probably wasn't even aiming, like just throwing his, his arrows in the sky. And one finds the precise spot In the armor of Ahab, the only spot, right? Sort of like the death star spot, right there, you know? Drop your bombs right there. And that's where the arrow lands. And Ahab is mortally wounded. Was it luck? Was it randomness? Was it a chance accident? Or was it a sovereign God accomplishing his sovereign purposes? Ahab could do whatever he wanted to do, but he could not hide from God. Because God is sovereign even over chance. We live in a world that that has made a god of chance and lady luck that often views life as completely arbitrary and random. I remember back when the the old Apple iPods came out, one of their marketing slogans was, Life is random. Now that's great, right? It's great to have a little device that can sort of shuffle all your songs and you don't know what song's going to get played next. But if that's your philosophy of life, that life is just fundamentally random and arbitrary, then you're in trouble. For us, for those who believe the Bible, we see that though things may seem accidental or random or coincidental or lucky, yet we know that God is sovereign over all. Over every half-court basketball shot, over every bullet, over every lightning strike, over every chance encounter, over every pedestrian walking and car or vehicle traveling, God is seated on his holy throne. He works all things, everything after the counsel of his holy will. Every thought, every word, every intention, every action. As R.C. Sproul so famously said, there is not one maverick molecule in all the universe. Because if there were, then something other than God would be God. He would not be supreme. Every molecule is according to his sovereign command. Some of you are history buffs and maybe you know this story, but in this American Civil War, the Battle of Antietam was a major turning point in that war. And this bloody battle was a Union victory that ended the South's first raid into the North. And it also gave Lincoln the opportunity to make the Emancipation Proclamation. But do you know how the Battle of Antietam was started? On September The 9th, 1862, General Robert E. Lee wrote out special order number 191 for his commanding officers, telling them how the the southern troops would move and and where they would go and and how the forces would be situated. Well, a few days after that order was issued, uh, northern troops found three cigars wrapped in special order number 191. They just happened to find it on the ground. Maybe some general had dropped out of his saddlebag or, you know, maybe someone didn't like the cigars and like, this is ridiculous. I'm out. Whatever it was, there were the cigars, which I'm sure they smoked, and there was special order number 191. And so all of a sudden Union General George McClellan knows exactly where the Southern troops are and where they're going to be. And so he brings the battle to them when they're not ready and Lee loses. Was it luck? Or was it under the control of a sovereign God? It was an accident. It was a happenstance. It was a coincidence. They just happened to drop him and they just happened to find him. But God was working his sovereign purposes out. He is sovereign over chance. When you read in the book of Ruth, and it even uses the language, Ruth's chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. But that language of chance is only there to reveal to us that God is sovereign over every coincidence, over every happenstance. He is providentially bringing Ruth to her kinsman redeemer. The book of Esther, God's name is not mentioned one time in the book of Esther, an entire Bible book. And yet you read that book and you cannot help but see the sovereign providence over God at every step of the way. The king can't sleep. He brings a book to him, right? Who's out there, he says. It's, it's every single aspect of the story is, is God unfolding his sovereign plan through happenstance and chance and lucky events. How many times have things happened in your life that just seemed to be lucky, that just seemed to be coincidences or unlucky? How many times has this happened to you? Hopefully more, not more than once, at least, that you're driving on the road and you just happen to go over the very spot that thousands of tires have gone over, but you go over the spot where the nail hits right in the exact spot that can puncture your tire. You're like, you know, how many thousands of cars have gone over this spot today and missed this nail? And I go over it when I'm late for a meeting, right? And yet God is sovereign over the nail, over the tire, over your time, every single aspect of your life. He's not caught by surprise by anything. He is sovereign over chance. Now, of course, we still wrestle that question, Lord, why, why did this happen to me? And the Bible doesn't give us those answers, but it does affirm that he is a good God, a holy God, a wise and a loving God, that even the things that seem unlucky, unfortunate, bad coincidences, he is working his sovereign and good purposes out. And any time that you happen to be just in the right place at the right time, meeting the right person, where you look back and you said, if I hadn't met that person, this wouldn't have happened, which means this wouldn't have happened, and then that wouldn't happen. What is that but the sovereign goodness of God at work in your life? God is sovereign over chance. And finally, this sex tells us that God is sovereign over his word. He is in the heavens, and he speaks, and he does whatever he pleases. And in the death of Ahab, And in the random desire of whoever was in charge of the the chariots and cleaning the chariots, bringing this to the pool in Samaria, and what happens? The dogs lick up his blood, which is exactly what Elijah had foretold would happen back a chapter or two ago. Because God speaks his words. And no matter what you might try to do to break that word, to thwart that word, you cannot break God's word, it breaks you. Jeremiah 23 says, it is a hammer that shatters the rock. Isaiah 55, God's word never returns to him empty. It always goes forth and accomplishes the purposes for which he sent it. Just as the rain comes down and the snow comes down and it waters the earth and it gives grain and seed to the sower and bread to those who eat, so God's word comes and accomplishes everything that God intends it to accomplish. Maybe not in the timing that we want it to accomplish it. But you cannot break the word of God. He is sovereign over his word. And so what is our response to be? As we read this story and we see God's sovereignty over evil, over chance, over the fulfillment of his word and his promises, we must bow the knee in submission to obey his word and to believe his goodness. Ahab had rejected the word time and time again. That's why he hated Micaiah, because he always spoke a word against him, because Ahab was always resisting, rebelling God's word. But God is faithful. He is faithful to keep his promises to those who resist him in pride and to those who, like Jehoshaphat, in the midst of their foolishness, cry out for help and for mercy. If you humbly repent of your willful pride, and God has promised that he will save you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from all of your sin, from all of your misery. He will hear and he will deliver. He is a sovereign, saving God. But if you persist in unbelief, if you persist in unrepentance and, and in disobedience, then this text is so clear. There is nothing that can help you. I don't care what you dress up as. God is sovereign, and his word will come to pass. May the Lord grant to us to respond rightly, to find our comfort, to find our encouragement, to find our strength in his sovereignty. Some of you are walking through difficult things. May this chapter be one that you perhaps come back to again and again to say, Lord, this is who you are. But some of you hear this. And it's in one ear and out the other. And God would say, hear this word. Repent before it's too late. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us these glorious truths in story form so that it might be easier for us to hear, that we might see, as it were, your sovereign reign. Lord, we don't understand everything about this text. We don't understand how you can be sovereign over evil and chance. Lord, but we believe. Help our unbelief, help our unrepentance, our hardness of heart. Lord, may we never say with Ahab that we hate your prophet, that we hate your word. Lord, give us soft hearts to submit our lives to you because you are a sovereign God, a great God, a holy God. You are a good and a kind God to those who cry to you for help. Oh, Lord, so often we are like Jehoshaphat. What are we doing there? And yet, Lord, you hear our cries. Would you give to us all grace to believe and to trust you, to draw strength from your sovereign power? We thank you, O oh Lord, for this beautiful story. May it remain with us all our days. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.